Hey Houston, for a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal, but we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th. Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? Good evening. I am the Unstoppable. I don't know what's going on there. Boy, we got something weird happening. Hello? Is that going to stop or what? Uh-oh. Okay, I think it stopped. Yay. <laughs> okay. Good evening. I am the Unstoppable Coach Frankie Picasso, and you are about to go on another Mission Unstoppable. Our guide tonight is a cultural visionary who is going to take us on a journey to the near future, to a world that no longer divides itself by color, and it is free of the ideology of different races. It's a place where each person will be judged on his or her own merit, befriended as an individual based on values, character, personality, what might our world look like, and how can we get there? Stay tuned and stay close. This is the unstoppable Frankie Picasso. You're listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio live on Tuesday, July the 21st. Time in Toronto is 8 p.m., 7 in Chicago, 5 in Los Angeles. I want to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network. And I want to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in to me each and every week. The phone lines are now open. The chat room is as well. Feel free to give us a call tonight at 646 595 3741 or meet us in the chat room and type any questions that you might have. This is going to be a very special show. It's a special 90-minute show, so hang in there with us. It's good. We're going to have lots of, lots of interesting uh, dialogue. For some of us, race casting, race-based discrimination, and racial cognition will have little or no meaning. But for musician, pastor, and author Jimmy Calhoun, his life has been defined by these very things. In his recent book, A Story of Rhythm and Grace, what the church can learn from rock and roll about healing the great divide, the, the racial divide, excuse me, Jimmy found that even as a senior pastor, church planter, missionary, a man who has devoted his life now to God, he, it is his color that enters a room before he does. Jimmy has shared the stage with the who's who of rock, legends in their own time. As a bassist, he's played with Jimi Hendrix, Etta James, Elton John, Dr. John, Parliament, John Lennon, Mick Jagger, and many, many more. And he's often found acceptance for Jimmy the man, something that has eluded him in the church. So let me welcome Jimmy first by saying that, let you know that he served as a senior pastor at Hope Chapel Sherman Oaks. Uh, in California, Hope Chapel Delray Beach in Florida. He spent six years as a missionary to Belize City, Belize, in Central America for the Four Square, um, Four Square Church, excuse me, and he's been part of the pastoral um, staff at Cedar Ridge Community Church in Spencerville, Maryland, and he's just recently moved to Texas. 
So tonight we are going to explore the issue of discrimination based on race, the values of Christianity, why the church hasn't taken a more active role in bridging the racial divide, and how we can encourage them to do so in the future. The next 90 minutes we're going to have some exciting guests later on in the show, and we're going to look at what each of us can do as individuals to bring heaven to earth and exist in harmony, peace, and love. Please welcome Jimmy Calhoun. Good evening, Jimmy, and welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you, Frankie? I'm excellent, thank you. And hi to everybody in the chat room. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> Jimmy, I wanted to first say that you have written an incredible and amazing book. When well, you could you have so traveled, much. you know, when you could have traveled down the road of woe is me, you never ventured away from your vision. You always extended your hand first. You asked us to meet you halfway. You educated us. You encouraged us to see things differently. And you never, ever judged us for where we are today. That is pretty incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So I hope that you're really proud of that book. Uh, well, it was I a labor be. of love. And it, it, <laughs> it, it, it was a long time in writing and a long time coming to fruition. But I think there were some things that needed to be said, and I'm glad that they're out there in, uh, in, in the world that people have a chance to uh, pick up on some of these concepts. I do too, you know, and I, I think hope springs eternal in you. And if there are more folks like you out there, I think that we would would and can build a thriving metropolis where, you know, relationships are built on love and values and mutual interest instead of race and tribe. And I, and I really hope to have, you know, this important discussion tonight. It's going to be lots of fun. Um, you, you know, I'm, I, we can't ignore that, you know, you were this, this mega rock and roll star. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know I would characterize myself as that. Uh, ironically, the, the thing that, uh, uh, the names that you mentioned, I intermittently played with a lot of people, but uh, the band that I was most proud of uh, was a band called Creation, which no one probably ever heard of. And uh, But, you know, that's to say that uh, we did get around and play with a lot of people and have a lot of fun, see a lot of things, and, and, and see a different type of culture uh, for for many years, people perceived the rock and roll world to be a subculture, and kind of, in some people's view, a seemly one. But in actuality, uh, particularly the time I was playing, it was a bunch of young people exploring music for the first time and, and having access to play major festivals and travel around the world. It was a very very exciting time. Uh, music was was quite different. It was a very small uh, band of people playing. You know, from, who were aged 18 to maybe 25, to, and rock and roll was just coming of age, and people were having access to um, airplanes, and it, it was just—it was very, very exciting. Some of the records that I first made, they actually put Fender bass on it to distinguish or differentiate from an acoustic bass, because Fender oh, wow. bass is a new instrument, you know, and so. Uh, it, if you stayed around and played around enough, you eventually ran into everybody. Uh, I remember walking down Sunset Strip with um, Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles with my friend Frosty, and uh, I don't think we made it from the whiskey up to about seven restaurants before we ran into like the Doors and Chicago and I'll just one the Birds or somebody. It was just every two two restaurants or something, you'd run into somebody from another band. So it was a very tight-knit bunch of um, uh, musicians, and it was very, very, very exciting. 
and I hope it was very exciting. I mean, it's they, you, you, all of them. You know, the airplane. Uh, they've all changed our world. They totally changed our world. Grateful Dead. I mean, all all of those folks. So I'm just going to play a clip from from Dr. John. I, you know, as I as I as I was reading your book, you brought back some some memories for things I totally forgot about the straits. <laughs> I mean, I totally forgot about right, the right, straits. Right. You know, and they said, oh man, those guys are so straight. Yeah, you know that was so funny to 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 bring that back. So let's let's. I'm gonna play a little bit of Dr. John Ico Ico. This is uh, a clip from one of your favorite guys. Who doesn't remember this? Ico 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 Andy. Now, that was the, the sounds of Dr. John, and for those of you who may not have heard of Dr. John, who are of this generation, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. John, a.k.a. Mac, played a very important role for you. Oh, that's certainly true, and, and we're still friends to, to this day. And we, I think we recorded that in, uh, I'm not really sure what year, but that was his first uh, record to become a hit. Uh, it was off the Gumbo album, and it it changed uh, his world, changed my world, and we we were able to start playing a little better venues. We played Carnegie Hall, which was really a big thing at the time. Holy moly, really? Of, wow. Of uh, different festivals, and you know, life life was good. And as a result of that, we were actually able to uh, to put creation together. But uh, Mac is a little bit older than me. And he grew up in New Orleans, which was a very it was a music town. But it wasn't a music town like San Francisco. In San Francisco, uh, everybody just played wherever they wanted to with whoever they wanted to. New Orleans mm-hmm. really wasn't the case. Uh, it was it was pretty stridently uh, segregated. And so Dr. John really loved uh, the music that 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 most people attributed to the black people, and he he, he paid a price to uh, to learn how to play it and to become fluent in it and and to to thrive in it and. So he's one of the first people I know to ever make a conscious effort and decision just to uh, cross that that imaginary line at all costs at a time when in actuality there was a little cost involved. So uh, hats off to Mac. He's one. Of, he's still he's a good doctor. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Well, when yeah. you you grew up, like, what was life growing up for you? What was it like? I, well, did you like as a young child? Did, did you know that there was that you were black? I mean, did you know that that there was a difference between you and the other other kids? I well, uh, initially in in uh, my grammar school years, as I as I say in the book, I, I grew up in a predominantly uh, Latino or Mexican neighborhood, and my next door neighbor, my friends were were Hispanic, and I would hang out with them, and their their parents would speak to me in Spanish and. It forced me to learn a little bit of Spanish, and most most of the most of my friends, Jerry Perez, Art Chavez, Ray Guzman, uh, they were just, they were all Hispanic. And for a long time, outside of mirrors, if, if had there not been mirrors, you would have had you would have been hard pressed to convince me that I wasn't Latino. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so uh, shortly after that, except when we go to church on Sunday, and, and 
my church would be all black. And, and one of the guys at church said, hey, Jimmy, why are you hanging out with all the Mexican guys? You know, you got to hang out with your own people. Mm-hmm. And which surprised me because I thought I was hanging out with my own people. They were the guys on my block, and the other guys lived a couple of st- two streets over. And if I wanted yeah. to hang out with black people, I would have had to uh, walk considerable distance. But uh, so I tried. I, I started doing that. I started hanging out with uh, more black people just because they were black, and uh, it didn't really make sense. And then uh, something happened where I wound up in a all-white school where I was the only black male and there was one other black female and all of the students there were primarily Italian because in the San Francisco Bay Area they were, uh, there was it was heavily Italian. So then all my friends became Italian, you know, and I thought, well, and they stayed through that all through high school, Brad Gardner and Mike Goodman and just a bunch of people who were, so I'm tri-racial. You're trying well in in the book i I think that you didn't even realize that that you know there was no issue of race until you you had your first kiss, and then all hell broke well, loose yeah, yeah that that was that was uh that was eye opening because i there was a drummer that lived around the corner for me, and i I used to play with him and we 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 did a TV show early on called the Ben Alexander show and Tommy Sosa was kind of this genius guy kind of guy he could play all the instruments and and I was trying to play piano and sing and not doing a very good job, but I was bold and had showmanship. So we got on the on the TV show as a result. But there was a, a little blonde girl who lived next door, and I, and, I, and she used, and we were still in grammar school, and uh, she had a crush on me. One day she asked if we could kiss, and we did. I guess she went home and told her folks, and uh, I thought World War Three was about to to start when her dad came around and. My parents explained to me that what was right, what was proper, proper parameters uh, for uh, relationships between me and other people who didn't physically resemble me. And uh, only though, as it related to females, <laughs> for some reason. Right, Everybody right. Else, only as really- you know, I, I, it was kind of confusing, but I just accepted it. And uh, but my acceptance didn't last long. But uh, yeah, so. Well, you know, I think it's a kind of a good segue then in, into looking at the issue of what is race because you, the, the Latino girlfriend that you had, who was as dark as you were, was also off limits to you. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, there, there was a there was a girl in, in, in my junior high school. She she was pretty much pretty close to my skin color, and I started dating her. And her brother came over and told me basically that uh, no one who looked like me was going to date her. And I'm thinking, well, we look pretty much alike. What do you mean? You know, that I'm 5'8 I'm and she's 5'4. Where, where are we going with this? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And he was, but... he was ready to uh, rearrange my nose, and I thought, well, this guy's got a pretty bad reputation, so I'll just let this one go. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a little confusing, you know, uh, as to... And, and to be honest, it's still confusing because, uh, you know, even at this, this point in time, traveling around the world and you get so many different, and when you land in a different place, uh, North America has its own ideas. And uh, when we lived in Central America, that general region had its own ideas and we we traveled other places. And it's very, very complex and very confusing. And, and I, I wish we had more time because it would probably take us about three days to go to to ferret out or to peel away all the layers that we could that we could discuss tonight. 
because it, it's well. Let, let me borrow from your book, if I could, because okay. I, I want to start off with the issue of race. You mentioned in the book that in 1790, Congress restricted naturalization to white people, and and what did that? What did the law mean by by white? So you said that the Syrians were white in 1909, 1910, and 1915, but not in 1913 or 1914. Asian Indians were white in 1910, 1913, 1919, 1920, but not in 1909, 1917, or after 1923. Asians were not considered white during this period, but in 1909, but because Asians had straight hair, maybe they were white. It, so it begs, you know, the question: <laughs> you know, what, you know, it, it, what is race? What is white? And what is black? Can you yeah, tell? You were born. You were born with blonde hair. So are you white? Are you white then? By, right, by right, you know, right. by, by this deference, you you have blonde hair. You don't have black hair. So you know, you must be white. How? If we can't answer this, if our government can't answer this. Who can answer it for us? What does it mean? Uh, I'm not sure, and I think it's elastic, and it's ever—it's a moving target, and and that's what I tried to illustrate in the book. And and sometimes even those dates that you gave, uh, well, you say, well, that was 1790, 1910, 1890. You know, we certainly yeah. settle the issue now. Well, have we? Uh, just have this we? week, uh, just this week, Julaine, there was a, there was a couple who adopted uh, some children. And they were a little bit darker than the parents, and uh, they would be called African American kids, and uh, white parents, and the parents call them their own. Right. And uh, the, the the person spoke to Julian and said, "Well, uh, what's up with that? That can't be right." And uh, Julian says, "Well, maybe they are theirs." And she says, "Oh, that's impossible." And this person's frame of reference didn't realize that that history records oh hundreds several hundreds of instances where uh children were born that looked quite different from their parents and mm-hmm. there wasn't anything going on uh, that was irregular it was just a happenstance of the genes lining up in or, or whatever those the chromosomes lining up in in a certain sequence that produced fish, um features that resemble quote another race and absolutely people, have been, people beg your pardon i just said absolutely yeah you know, for, all, for all those forced. farmers out there who who you know raise cattle they know that yeah exactly had, right yeah. you know i i lived on a farm we had two we had two um roan uh you know cow cattle cows who, who gave birth to white white exactly uh, right babies, and, and, pure white babies and, and somehow we think we're we're independent of the rest of the uh, animal kingdom. Sometimes, mm-hmm. when it comes to this right. one issue, I mean, we don't we look for all kinds of other reasons and excuses, and, and, and it's it, it's kind of baffling. And, and naturally, you know, as, as genes, the older mankind is, or human beings have been on the planet, the less chance those things are going to happen because people travel and you know they, they it, but they still have happened, and they continue to happen. And in my book, I gave an example of uh, I, I was in Maryland about 19. No, I'm sorry, 2003, and I picked up. I was on the computer, and I, I found a, a very odd article in in the London um, Guardian, I believe it was. And apparently, a uh, this couple had 
twins, fraternal twins. Now, one of the twins came out blonde hair and blue-eyed, and the other twin came out dark-skinned with black curly hair. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the book I put something, well, if we're going to use the, these racial designations that we've become so comfortable with, does this then mean that these two sisters who are re- totally related by blood mm-hmm. are of different races? <laughs> I mean, when they go to school to fill out an application, are they <laughs> if they're in the yeah. same class, are they going to have to fill out the blank a little bit differently? But the ironic thing about that, that was, that was prior to this to my book going to press. And just this year, guess what? It happened again <laughs> to the same Get couple. Get out. Yeah, to the you know, same yeah. couple? To the same couple. They had another set of twins, and, they came, and they, each one came out a different skin tone. Wow. Because I know that they had accused her originally of having a different father for each one. And as a mother of twins, I, I can attest that, you know, after after you have one set of twins, you have a 50% chance to have another set of twins. Is that right? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. And after 30, you have a 30% chance to have a set of twins. So her, 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 you know, her percentage went up real big, big time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. But isn't that absolutely amazing? And and so with with the world becoming so small today, you know, with, with this global village really becoming a village and, and, and people mixing and, and, and intermarrying and, and, and all of this stuff. And, and I'm sure that, that even before when people traveled, there, there was, inter, you know, there was always been um, interracial marriage and, and, and lines crossing from the beginning of time, I believe. So, so is there one race? I mean, I, I thought that I had read that, that um, scientists had taken our DNA back to two people, that everybody in the world is related, you know, by well, DNA to these two people. That's a very interesting concept because, I mean, that's my uh, professionally right now. I, I'm a Christian minister. I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm an ordained minister, and uh, where the circles I travel, we profess to to take the Bible very seriously, mm-hmm. and the Bible says that two people were the progenitors of of all of humankind. And yet, it's it's one of those instances where people and certain people of faith are very comfortable disregarding that particular uh, <laughs> part of the Bible and moving on and acting like it wasn't there. And uh, you know that that that's one of the interesting things. And and quite too, frankly, that was one of the reasons that I, that prompted me to write the book because I thought we'd better take uh, another quick look into it quick pass by that and yeah and you're absolutely right scientists have have come and, and the only thing they're debating now is where that cradle of civilization was they keep finding remains in one place and another place and, oh maybe it was here maybe it was there but it's uh, it's pretty much a unanimous or at least it's an accepted thought that, that, that there had to have been uh, like just we've all had to have had common ancestors because still, even today, we still have all the, pretty much the same genes. And interestingly enough, in my research, I found that uh, people in Ireland had more genetic similitudes or more gen, uh, genetic characteristics similar to those to people living in West Africa than they did to people living in England. 
which in, in a book called Mapping uh, the History, the Human Mapping of Human History, I found that and it just blew. That is me very interesting. Away. I wonder. I wonder if that's where Black Irish came from. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was wondering as well. Yeah, actually, the, in another book, they theorized that that was a result of phrenology. When people just they got into the measuring everyone's skulls, trying to prove right. that you had a bigger skull, that you were smarter, and if you, you know, and uh, they did find that skulls were had more in keeping. I'm not sure that it was Irish and African. It might have been Irish and Egyptian. I'm, I can't remember, but there was a connection where the Irish had skulls more similar with somebody in the, uh, on the African continent than they did with the English as well. So, well, you know, uh, my personal belief, Jimmy, is that we all started out black. I do believe that. If I look at, you know, coming, coming from a, a line of, you know, um, a history of Jews, <laughs> the Sephardic Jews are black. I mean, they're, you know, there's no other word for it. They are black, and they're very, very dark. Right. And, 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 and so if they come from the Middle East, and we're supposed to have come from the Middle East, and Bethlehem is, you know, the holy city, then how can we not have been dark or black? And I, I am not religious, and I don't know the Bible, but I remember reading one thing in the Bible, and maybe you can help me with it, was in, in Song of Solomon, in King Solomon, Song of Solomon, that when he described, you know, his, his queen, she was black. She was Correct. blacker yeah, than black. Was she not? And how yeah. beautiful she was? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, this I mean, is, and, and just using the term black, I mean, we, we it, it's such a, it has connotation, just throwing that word out, and, and, and that's hopefully some of the things that we can get past with a book and our conversation tonight and and get people thinking about the, our word usage and how and, and, and how they sound to our ears in a, in a musical sense. Frankie, you know how music, how how a kick or a, a bass groove or something evokes a certain kind of feeling in you when you hear it done Absolutely. funkily, if for lack of a better term. Yep. And yet the same instrument, when it's used in a symphony, it doesn't elicit the same response. Correct. And so, and yeah. so these words that we use, um, like the, using the word red, doesn't do anything. Right. But if we use the word black, which is just another word and another word for a color, it it just it, it does something to everyone hearing it. You know, it's it's a shame. Yeah. Well, you know, just to go back to red. I mean, red. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, Frankie, you really need to 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 walk your red road, meaning get back in touch with with you know the, my, the native history, you know, okay. um, uh, you know, native Aboriginal Americans. But since you brought up funk, I'm going to play a little bit of P-Funk before we go to our guests. And, and we're going to bring them on. And, Jimmy, you're going to co-host with me here and, and take over. And, and, and we'll have a discussion with all these fine folks who are waiting on, online. And all you guys in the chat room, hey, thanks for hanging in. It's going to be uh, just wonderful. If you have questions, if you want to call in, if you want to talk to us, I am going to open up the phone lines very, very shortly. So let's just go to a little short break. Maybe you want to go to the bathroom. Maybe you want to get a drink and uh, get ready for the next the next hour with us is a special 90-minute Mission Unstoppable. Hang in there. Here we go.
I cannot stop moving when I hear that. I just love P-Funk. It's like my most favorite thing. As a funk yeah. drummer, man, <laughs> that just gets yeah. me going. I just love it so much. It is yeah, such happy music. That, yeah, the, the drummer on that particular track was a drummer named Buddy Miles. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, wow. So that was Eddie Hazel and Buddy Miles and myself. And it, it, was, it was a really cool track. How great is that? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start taking these calls here. I think um, I'm not sure who's on this one because it's showing up. It might be a Skype line. Let's see who's with us. Hello there. Thanks for hanging on. Who's calling, please? Latane Scott here. Oh, hi, Latane. How are you? Good. Good. I'm just gonna open up these other lines because I think I know who's there. Let's see. Good evening. Hi. Is this Paula? Yeah, I can't tell Hi. which line it is. Yeah, this is Paula Matapanic, yes. <laughs> Hello, Paula. Welcome. Just hang in for one more second. I think this this must be Chad. Hi, Chad. Frankie here. How are you doing? I'm, I'm excellent. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Well, let me introduce you, folks, to our listening audience, uh, to those in my in my reading audience that they know who you are. But um, for, for purposes of everybody else who's hanging in there, I'm going to introduce you. The first um, person I'd like to introduce is Dr. Paula Matanabe, and she is an associate professor in Howard University Department of Radio, TV, and Film. She's a producer writer of Africa in the Holy Land, Significant Connections, an award-winning film on the black presence in the Bible, shot on location in Israel and occupied Palestine. This is the only film ever made about the black presence in the Bible, and her most recent documentary, The Power of the Image, looks at the impact of the white image of Jesus on African-American faith and identity. Dr. Madhavani is a published scholar on media, gender, race, and culture. She's also an ordained um, itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. She's a highly respected teacher, workshop leader, and preacher, and she's preached and taught in the United States and in South Africa. She um, is a native of Atlanta, Georgia, and um, has a BA in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, MA in film from Stanford University, PhD, and uh, master's division degree from Howard University on race and culture. She also has a wonderful film that she's done called Faithfully Divided, and I've um, given a link to Faithfully to the trailer anyway. And maybe, um, Paula, you can talk about your film a little bit and uh, tell us folks how they can see it, because it's pretty amazing. Okay. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, I, I was very interested in the conversation that was going on, and uh, and also reading, you know, what uh, what Jimmy Calhoun, you know, has to say about this whole issue of racial reconciliation in the mm-hmm. churches. And my film, Faithfully Divided, is about that topic, looking at three churches in uh, rural Georgia, and these three churches have a common history going back to slavery. There's two black churches and one white church. And the the founders of the two black churches were members of the white church when they were slaves. And my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother were in that number. <clears throat> but anyway, to make a long story short, after slavery, the blacks pulled out to form their own church, and the white church helped them by giving them land. And in the case of one church with my grandmothers, they had to maintain the cemetery the white cemetery that was on the land, and it turns out that that's where those former slave owners are buried. So here you have former slaves 
agreeing to maintain the cemetery of former slave owners in order to get two acres of land, which was which was integral to them being able to have this church. Into so perpetuity I, or like forever yeah. and ever they're supposed yeah. to do this? Yeah. And so I went back to the church with my father, you know, who knew the history. And, of course, the, the cemetery was not being kept up, you know, because there's a different generation of people. Mm-hmm. And I took on the challenge of whether or not this promise should be kept. Should we, the descendants of freed slaves, have to maintain the cemetery of former slave owners? And I went to the white church that had done that, who had given the land, and, of course, they didn't remember anything about it. Mm-hmm. But I began to have a conversation with them to find out um, what kind of relationship do you guys have? You know, because usually when, when a church comes out of another church and they help them, you know, they remain in good relationship. But that's mm-hmm. not the case. You know, like they has, uh, there has been no relationship between the white church and the black churches since, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that period the after uh, mm-hmm. slavery. And so I began to challenge them as to why they would not seek to cross the racial divide because it's obvious that at some point they had a relationship. And I think that um, it, it's important for black and white churches to work together, particularly in a rural area, because if they came together to, to do ministry together, they could help uh, impact the social issues, the social problems in their little uh, community. But it seems they really weren't that interested in it. And so, you know, but, but, but the film is about having this conversation about the possibility of racial reconciliation. And we're going to come back to that. But I did want to ask you just, just one thought um, before I move on to our, our other guests. Paula, they must have been related to each other at some were they not? Did you find folks that were related black and white through slave owner and slave um, in those churches? N- well, I mean, like, I didn't do that type of extensive history. Okay. I did not. But I know that my grandma, my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother used to be slaves, and they were members of that white church. Okay. Now, I don't know if they had any blood, any blood kinship to them or not. I really don't know. Okay. Jimmy, did you want to make a comment before I move on to our other guests? And we're, we're going to come back to all of you, but I, I do want to introduce everybody. Well, no other comment than I, this is a wonderful film, and that I can't wait to see it myself. I know, I know, in its, in its entirety, I can't yeah. either. Chad Lassiter is nationally recognized in the field of American race relations and violence prevention among African-American males. He received his master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Social Work, where he has the A. Philip Randolph Award winner in 2001. Chad also was chosen by Ebony Magazine as one of the young leaders of the future under 30 in February 2003. In May 2004, he was named Who's Who Among African Americans, 17th edition, along with such notables as Colin Powell and Michael Jordan. In 2005, he was Philadelphia's most influential African-American, 10 people under 40 to watch. In 2005, by the Philadelphia Tribune. He's also one of the co-founders, current president of the Black Men at Penn School of Social Work, Inc. at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School for Social Policy and Practice. The group seeks to recruit black males in the profession of social work as well as providing anti-racism and violence prevention training to urban and schools around the country. And he's worked on race, peace, 
poverty-related issues both in Africa and Israel. And presently, he's adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, where he is a 2008 recipient of the Dr. Martin Luther King Junior Community Involvement Award for Faculty and a visiting scholar at Westchester University. Congratulations on all of your awards, Chad. Thank Amazing. You, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your show, and I'm, I'm enjoying the, the dialogue thus far. I guess for me, being a product of the black church, I've been for the past 10 years trying to find a profound way in which we can bridge the color line as it relates to the way we worship on Sunday. I think all of your viewers and, and all the callers, that all the guests that are on the show could uh, – pretty much agree that we know that Sunday is probably the most segregated hour uh, in, in, in during the course of the week when we're looking at churches. Um, and, and for me, it's really trying to get the black church back to uh, its fundamental uh, core of being a social change agent and, and fighting for social justice where, where injustice exists. Um, and I don't see that anymore. Um, I see a lot of prosperity preaching. I see a lot of I blink because I'm happy. Uh, but I don't see them on the front lines as it relates to the prison industrial complex, HIV, AIDS in the African-American community, and also a lot of the police brutality that happens in most of our urban boroughs. So I'm just looking forward to having a discussion this evening, uh, but also providing some action items uh, to pretty much make a clarion call to all churches uh, with regards to humanity to come on board to really start addressing okay. some of the things that are plaguing our communities. Beautiful. Jimmy, did you want to make a comment? As yeah, actually forward? I did. And, and uh, I met Frankie through a, a mutual friend named uh, Eddie Taduri, a wonderful guy that lives in Los Angeles, is doing this wonderful work. Um, and I've been a pastor in primarily white churches, and which has been a, a bit of an anomaly. Wow. And uh, one of the things that I, I typically do is challenge the people in the congregation to what is their view of people living on the margins and also who are those people. And uh, when you see injustice, what should be your natural response? And typically what I get is a blank stare and what a novel idea but what do you mean? And um, everything that was just itemized there would be, would have been a great answer to those questions when I put them before my congregation. And as he was articulating them, I was smiling uh, on the phone on this end, uh, just thinking about how nice it's going to be if I can run this tape back <laughs> to, to my people. So that's good. Thank you so much. Excellent. Wonderful. Latane Scott is with us, and she is the author of 15 books and an, and an authority on Mormonism. As a former Temple Recommend Mormon, she shares insider insights about this religion through her heavily documented book, The Mormon Mirage, A Former Member Looks at the Mormon Church Today. Um, she is an award-winning author of over a dozen books. She's published by major Christian publishers such as um, Zondervan, Moody, Baker, Word, and others. And in addition, she's published poems, radio plays, and hundreds of articles in magazines such as Today's Christian Woman, Guidepost, Writer's Digest, uh, The Upper Room, Christian Research Journal, Christian Retailing, and Military Officer. As a full-time writer, she also speaks at seminars, retreats, and on television and radio programs. She's a recipient of Pepperdine University Distinguished Christian Service Award for Creative Christian Writing, and she makes her home in native New Mexico. Latine um, responded to an advertisement that I had, as each of you did, um, seeking 
uh, ways that the church can uh, integrate, ways that, that they can bridge the, um, the racial divide. And uh, so let, let, let's bring her words into this and how the Mormon church has changed its position on, on blacks in the church. Well, Good evening. While, Jimmy, while Jimmy was doing uh, his musical thing, I was uh, uh, at Brigham Young University, and at that time the Mormon church did not allow black males to hold the Mormon priesthood. And um, the, the perspective I have on that is, is that um, as a happy Mormon, I had all the answers about why that was justified. And it wasn't until after I left the Mormon church and saw that those, the reasons that they were giving for denying priesthood to black males was not uh, biblically tenable did I begin to look at it differently. But um, uh, the one thing that Mormonism has done right is that they do now allow blacks to hold the Mormon priesthood. They're allowed to go to the LDS temples and perform ordinances and that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> I'm the voice of, <laughs> of someone who, who was there uh, in a church that was very racially divided, I mean perhaps more than any other church in the United States, and was able to make changes to the extent that there are now uh, hundreds of thousands of black uh, LDS members. Wow. Most people Amazing. Don't know yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And um, I'm still waiting for, for Pastor Dave to call in, but um, Dr. Andrew Fraser, um, who is a Jehovah Witness, really wanted to be part of the show, and she ended up having to teach this evening. So she had she's written a letter, and she wanted me to share with you. And so I hope that you will, will allow me to read uh, this letter to you. She has a very interesting background, and she has something um, interesting to say, I think. Um, she's a practicing Jehovah's Witness. She says, our Christian faith does not allow for racial discrimination. In fact, we're known for love and racial harmony that exists among us worldwide. Next month, we will be offering in over 230 lands in over 80 languages, not including dialects, the Awake magazine, which is entitled Prejudice and Discrimination, Why and How You Can Cope. She, she wrote me a letter today, this morning, and she said, um, my background is very unique in that my mother is of mixed race and grew up in North Carolina in the 1950s. She had red hair, hazel eyes, and came from the right stock of people to run in proper circles. My grandmother was college educated, so was my mother, as am I. In my mother's family, the two worst things you could be was dark-skinned and uneducated. My father's people were sharecroppers and blessed with dark velvet skin. My father may or may not have finished high school, but was a good worker with a vivacious personality and was well-respected by all because he is a good man. The worst thing to be in my father's family was a stuck-up Uncle Tom trying to make it in a white man's world. Match made in heaven, right? <laughs> okay, she says, both of my parents came of age when people were learning to define for themselves their opinions and values in life. And when they decided that they were going to make and live by their own rules, they were the first to move into their they were the first in their family to move into an upper middle class white neighborhood. So growing up, we went to school with children of generals, colonels, doctors, and the like. We understood that we had to be better than the best to receive recognition as being on par with average ones of the group. The bar was set high in our home, and death was the only excuse for failure. The drive to succeed that they planted in us helped us not to view the blatant racism that we faced as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. We came to understand that fear motivated people to hate and that love conquers all. My parents took us out to work with those who live on the streets, and we dined in the homes of very notable people. My parents worked hard not to make us colorblind, but to not let the outer appearance of a man dictate his worth. 
as a side note, the only time my father ever spanked me was when one of my, the kids in my school called me a coon and I called him a cracker. I was spanked because I shrank down to his level and used my words to harm, not to heal. I asked her a couple of questions. I asked if, if um, what is any abuse? Uh, she lives in a very small town, rural town. So I asked her, um, what, if any, abuse have you had to withstand being the only African-American living in a small rural town? She's married to a white, a white husband. She says, no one can mistreat you without your permission. I do not carry myself in a way that people would feel like they can abuse me. I love myself too much, and it shows. However, this is a good example of how things manifest. I was doing some community volunteer work with two of our congregation members and was told pointedly that I was not welcomed here by a man who grew up in town. She said, I had to stop my internal search in destroy mode and calm down. I asked him, where am I not welcomed? Here in Smithsburg, in the town, or off Jonathan Street, a low-income housing area a few, a few towns over. I asked him why I was not welcomed, and his response was, okay, this is the N-word, and I've never said this word in my life. <laughs> I don't really want to say it. It's just because you are a nigger, and niggers need to stay in their place. Again, she said she had to stop and search destroy mode. By this time, we had an audience, and I knew I was on display, so I asked him in a deceptively calm voice, did he know what a nigger was? And his response was, you girl, you're a nigger. And my response to him was, if by nigger you mean a well-educated, beautiful, kind, generous, giving person with a forgiving heart, then you are right, I'm a nigger. In fact, I'm the queen of all niggers. Hail the nigger queen. That was enough to break the tension with laughter and to embarrass my friend. The beauty of the moment came when I saw my sisters in Christ visibly angry enough so that I had to stop these two from going after the guy him a good thumping. Both of them are well in their 60s. My neighbors, for the most part, were apologetic for the man's behavior and assured me that I was indeed welcomed. I think that one said it best when she said that I was a threat to their comfort zone in that they could justify their beliefs because it was so easy to find bad examples to prove their point. But when you see someone who looks different from you with the same goals and aspirations, then you really have to look inward, and most people don't want to do that. She says, we've been here for three years now, and even the skinheads open the door at the mini-mart for me now because I treat them the same way I wish to be treated. Are they happy that I'm here? Probably not, but I'm here, and they have accepted that. I asked her, what made you marry a white man, and did you ever receive negative comments from black men or women about your departure from the tribe? She said, I married my, my husband because he's a good man. His color has nothing to do with it. He is my best friend, my cheering section. I cannot imagine not having him in my life. There is one time when we were out in our ministry in a predominantly black area with another white couple. And when we saw an older white gentleman in the yard, my husband says, Honey, we should let Mark and Margie uh, take this one. I think this man will feel more comfortable talking to a white person. I said, Okay, that's a good idea. And we took a few steps before we realized that at least only one of us fits this criteria. So we had a good laugh over that one. She says, I honestly don't see my husband as white. I just see him as Wayne. And yes, I did get some flack from black people about choosing to be with my husband. We were married quite young, before we could even legally drink. And so when we first married, people thought it was a rebellion thing. And now that we've been together for 20 years, they think it's a money thing. It's hard for them to accept that it's about love, mutual respect, because that would mean that our own prejudices would have to be questioned. They would have to face all that white men are not evil or all that black women aren't lazy, loud, or rude, and that you can love the differences in another without losing your own identity. I asked her, how did your faith help you forgive or deal with those who treat you with disrespect? She said, this is a no-brainer. 
Would you expect a blind man to see what is right in front of him? Of course not. People are blinded by prejudices and hatred. They can't see what is right before their eyes. And that is their problem, not mine. I can try to help them see, but if they don't open their eyes, they're the ones that are going to fall into the pit, not me. The Bible says, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Love of God, self and neighbor, motivates me to forgive from my heart without being asked. The Bible also says, God is love. And if I'm to call myself a woman of God, then I must love. And if I did not forgive, carrying that hatred would hold me back and destroy me. I cannot give anyone an easy victory over my life like that. I asked her, what are your recommendations for bridging the racial gap? She said, I spent time overseas where I did not feel any racial tension. I was judged based on what I did, who I am, and not what I am. We need to appreciate that you can't judge a book by looking at its cover, that good and evil are not the sole possessions of any one group of people, and that someone's differences does not increase your value, nor does it decrease theirs. This, this one I love. She said, I said, should we become colorblind? She said, no, colors are beautiful. We want to live in a world without variety. Or who would want to live in a world without variety? But we cannot let color dictate our worth. One million dollars in gold and one million dollars in diamonds still have the same value. They just look different. I think that's perfect. And do you think that we can do this while keeping distinct culture, or will they have to blend? She said, we need to keep distinct cultural ties, because if we forget where we come from, we can't know where we're going. However, we're forging a new future, so some blending will have to take place in order for there to be a commonality. To some extent, it already has. If we think of 9-11, people weren't black, white, yellow, or red. They were Americans. They mourned according to their traditions, but they were in pain together because of their common experiences. My children have grown up in a multicultural life, so they've been blessed with a family of heart from all walks of life. They've taken what they love from those cultures along with the history that we have given them and are forging their own future where they understand where they belong and how they fit into the mosaic of their lives. And that is the end. Wow. You you know, Frankie, this is Chad. I find a lot of what she verbalizes to be really profound. But but one thing that I, I recognize is that we do live in a society where at the present time race rules. And I know that a lot of times people want to verbalize that we're in a post-racial society because we finally get the first African-American president. Prior to that, the data was 43 white male presidents, zero women, zero people of color. But I fundamentally believe that we're not going to ever see a colorblind society. When I see human beings, I see their color, but I also see their humanity. When I was over in Israel, there were a lot of Jews in and around the old city who did three things. They either placated me, they either displayed with false generosity, or they either ingratiated me. And while I was at the Welling Wall praying, you can imagine the stares that I received. Uh, six foot six, African American, dark skin, bald headed. What am I doing at the wall? As I continued to go throughout the old city and I hit over to the side where the Muslims are, stairs. When I get to the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, stairs. And so I think what happens is once we begin to converse with one another, we were able to break down some of those barriers, some of those walls. But I think what we also have to recognize is that uh, doctrine and dogma are different in various churches. So, for instance, Mm -hmm. at my church, I really embrace a liberation theology, a black liberation theology that God is on the side of the oppressed. Uh, And then growing up in the black church, I had some fundamental problems with uh, a fan that I would use that had a blue-eyed, blind-haired Jesus Christ on it. 
And then when mm-hmm. I asked my mom and my father, you know, that I'm reading scriptures here in Sunday school that are telling me that Jesus was not this color, my mom's reply was, it doesn't matter as long as his blood was red. And then when I went off to a historical black college, Johnson C. Smith University in the South, I called my mom and I said, well, mom, if it doesn't matter what color Jesus is, let's paint him black and look at the psychological outcomes that disadvantageously will impact whites and others for the next 400 years because it's been psychologically damaging for a lot of African-Americans and Africans to look at an image of Jesus Christ knowing that that was not the image or to look at the Last Supper knowing that it was the artist who painted you know, people who pose for mm-hmm. the picture. But all this racial imagery and religious imagery that we get that comes out of the Catholic Church and various other places at times can leave people wanting to turn away from religion but to seek God. And I fundamentally believe that that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to have a relationship with him and not a relationship with a particular denomination. We have a whole lot I of I have religion. to agree with you there. I have yeah, to agree have, with you. We, Let me just stop you though cuz I I see that Father Davis here. Let me just introduce him and then we'll all get then we'll all be together. Okay? Is that okay, Chad? Oh, great. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Davis, I, I think that's you. Is that am I correct? Yep. Hey, how's it going? Great. Thanks. Great. So this is Pastor Dave Eisenbart. Is it Eisenbart or Eisenbart? Got it. Eisenbart. And he's a senior pastor at Living Springs Community Church, where he has been positively addressing the issue of racism within his own church. And he he comes from Iowa. You've lived in Holland, Michigan, and spent the majority of your growing up here in uh, Wisconsin. You uh, went to Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. You graduated with a BA in psychology, and you, you... Sense the calling from the Lord to pursue full-time ministry where you went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, graduated with a Master's uh, of Divinity degree. You spent five years in the seminary. You also served as an intern pastor at Emmanuel Reformed Church in Paramount, California. Pastor Dave was installed as the Associate Pastor of Living Springs uh, in Homeward Reformed Church on September 16, 1994. You married. You have um, two boys, Joshua and Caleb and you're married to Kristen, and you have a daughter, Anika, and now you live in Glenwood. And um, you answered the call as well to, to discuss racism within the church and, and what your, particularly your church has been doing to positively address the issue. You are, um, you're currently where, David? In, you're in Glenwood, you in, Illinois, which is a suburb Illinois, of that's right. And okay. Chicago has you know, obviously been uh, quite a racially divided uh, or segregated a city, and uh, our church 20 years ago was a predominant, well, uh, almost exclusively Anglo church, and uh, today it has it is quite diverse as a result of some pretty intentional efforts. And so I'm real passionate about this area. I'm not published, but um, this is a this is an area that uh, we uh, have been very intentional about building bridges and breaking down walls wherever we can, and also. Um, seeking to um, really uh, bring cultures together and uh, in, in the hopes that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning wouldn't be the most segregated hour in America. And so we've been working real hard in this area to do that. So I'm more of a practitioner. Okay, great. Well, welcome to the show. Jimmy, um, I'm sure that you have comments for, for lots of that you've heard. And so I'm, gonna, I'm inviting you to, to take a co-host position with me and, and start some dialogue. Oh, well, I'm interested in uh, first what David uh, just chimed in with, and I was curious about uh, the makeup of your church and uh, as it relates to race. And you said it's quite diverse. Uh, 
Do you know what percentages of uh, each ethnicity is represented in the congregation on a particular Sunday? Yes. Um, now the church is uh, about 20% African American, about 8% African uh, from African descent, um, and then we have uh, a smaller population of um, both Hispanic and uh, and Asian. Um, so there's quite a diversity, about about 35% total now. Oh, that's very very interesting. And and typically, in one of the the problems that that uh, churches have faced when when there are dif- uh, divergent cultures in them is how they do liturgy, how they do worship, because across America the the, the worship spectrum is pretty broad. Some are more vociferous, some are more liturgical and, and reverent and quiet. Uh, what what style of worship do you have? Uh, we it's it's a we're a part of the Reformed Church in America, which is a mainline denomination, which tends okay. to be more liturgically oriented. But our church would be more contemporary, and uh, we 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 tend to have kind of a smorgasbord approach, uh, where we have kind of a Living Springs sound, which is. Uh, a mix of of gospel and uh, contemporary Christian music, as well as kind of the ancient hymnody and so and so on. So we we have a, 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 a kind of a blend of of different cultures, and we tend to have a very very good. A that sounds really cool. Of different uh, music music and and also the the and also who we have uh, on on stage preaching and so on. We have six people on our pastoral team, which is and we have three African Americans and. Uh, three Anglo's and uh, two women and four men. So we try to bring diversity in that way as well. That's wonderful, and and that has been one of the problems that we we faced is trying to get more churches across America to be more diverse. Is who chooses what style we're going to have, and who's going to be representative? Who actually to break it down even farther? Who has the power? And uh, th- that's been one of the one of the issues that I've run into is as is, is I've made my way through this uh, this maze of uh, Christendom is that uh, people don't want to relinquish power too uh, readily. There's a little bit of apprehension, a little bit of fear, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear what you're doing. Yeah. I'd like to know, I'd like to know from each of you, um, Chad's last comment, because I tend to agree with him that we need to take religion out of the mix and just add spirituality to our lives. I think that um, religion in its own um, tends to divide people. What do you think? Well, you know, the meaning of the word religion is the retying of people to God, and so it's kind of gotten a bad rap that it's, it's, uh, its meaning, its core meaning is to retie people to their creator, and so in that sense, religion is, is not a bad thing if it's, um, if it's done the way the creator wanted it done. <laughs> but it discriminates, doesn't it? I mean, you, you know, you, this, here's, a, here's a Mormon or an ex-Mormon, here's a, um, you know, a Baptist, here's an Episcopal, here, here's an evangelical, you know, here's a Jew, here's a this, here's a Muslim. So whether we're one color or not, we're still discriminated by, by what our faith and what we believe in by the church that we go to, because even if the church becomes, um, you know, multiracial, multicultural, uh, women and men and so inclusive, it's still, when we go, you know, and, and, and hang out, let's say, in society, we are probably going to hang out with those who have beliefs similar to ours, maybe people from our own church. 
can I jump in? This is Paul. Yes, please. Okay. Well, I'm not against religion, you know, as an ordained minister, and I'm certainly not against people talking about spirituality. And probably one of the problems with religion is a lack of sufficient spirituality in there. But um, I think that, you know, we can talk about style, but it's really about the substance of that church organization. But the church itself is an earthly organization, you know, trying to carry out a spiritual and social function. So it's about that style. And with this, uh, with the church that uh, Pastor Eisenberg is pastoring, I mean, it sounds very unique because typically you have that black people will go to white leadership. Black people will submit to white leadership. White people typically will not submit to black leadership. And so you have this very difficult substance problem. Because, you know, we can get over style. You know, you, you can have more than one worship service that accommodates the different styles, you know, that people um, like. And then the other thing I wanted to say was that uh, Jimmy talked about, he said race rules. And I really wonder, does it? As a woman, I would say that gender rules. <laughs> I'm a black woman, and I don't say that color does not matter because I grew up in the segregated South riding in the back of the bus. But when I went to Jerusalem, I couldn't go to the main part of the Wailing Wall, okay? That was reserved for the men. The women had had a little tiny part where they could go. We had a film camera, and we wanted to go into the Al-Aqsa ma- uh, Mosque at, you know, at, at the Dome of the Rock. I couldn't go in. My crew could go in because they were male. I couldn't go in. And I really think, that even though you're, you know, you're, this program is not about gender, I mean, you know, if we're talking about reconciliation, we still have to um, bring that subject up. The I think so. Point, We're all human beings. Yeah. And then the third <laughs> point is, I was just in Italy, and I was at Europa at the Shrine of the Black Madonna over in there where people come, and it's a shrine where they, uh, people feel like they get healing and miracles there. But when we went into the little shop that was right there at the Basilica, they were selling Mammy and Sambo dolls. Wow. Oh, my. I mean, you know, like it, it, it blew my mind that, they, that that image of the black Madonna had nothing to do with racial reconciliation or diversity. And there was no one there, you know, who we could um, ask that question of. So those are just some things that um, I wanted to put out there because I think that truly the – the real step to us bridging this gap is that we're going to have to enter into a fellowship of suffering, like get into other people's stories and know where you hurt, know where I hurt, and where that common humanity is. And see, I think what Paula speaks to is something that we definitely need to look at, and I would echo her same sentiments in the sense that we don't need to talk about diversity and multiculturalism. We need to talk about racism, and we, it doesn't need to be a talk in which is touchy-feely, kumbaya, you know, tiptoe mm-hmm. through the tulips. It needs to be a conversation where we deal with the oppression of not just the African Holocaust, but also when she talks about the intersectionality of race and gender, because within the confines of churches, mosques, and synagogues, Women are discriminated against often and repeatedly. And so I think that we need to have a race dialogue that deals with the historical underpinnings of how religion was used as a tool even during the time of slavery and how women 
we're part of the discrimination factors as well. And we need to enter into that conversation and we need to not be PC about it and we need to not attack one another, but maybe analyze one another's ideology concepts and the way religion even today controls people. Jimmy, uh, don't you Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I could barely hear you. Jimmy, don't you think that it begins in the home? And the reason I say that is uh, churches are made up of uh, households. And uh, unless, uh, unless we're willing to have people that are not like us in our homes, um, unless we're willing to, uh, to start fellowship at that point, I don't think any about amount of legislating or anything else or in the case of Mormonism, changing revelations, makes any difference. If you're not willing to, at, on, on the basis of, of having someone in your home and extending fellowship uh, and friendship uh, that goes across uh, economic and racial lines, you're not going to make any changes. Uh, I, I would certainly agree with that. In that, there, there are so many norms, so many normative, so many things that are norming on each society and we use words like culture, and that we overuse them in, in ways that, that almost to the point where they have no meaning. And as uh, she as she was sharing about uh, the gender issue that uh, Paula, uh, Paula, I'm terribly sorry. Yes, as Paula was sharing, I I, I thought that is so true, and yet um, I've been discriminated against in Jamaica because I didn't look Jamaican, whereas when I went to Belize, people treated, I looked like the Belizeans, and so therefore I was more welcome. And, and there's just so many layers to the onion that uh, it, sometimes we need to look at the bigger thing. And I think as Frankie said, that, or uh, someone said it was about spirituality and remembering that we're, that we're spiritual beings first and foremost, and, uh, and that that the spiritual being that we all are probably doesn't have either race nor gender, that these are only manifestations of our earthly existence. Well, Jane, uh, Jimmy does, does uh, sorry, Jimmy, but um, we're so short on time. You, you do mention in your book what Latane was talking about, um, that there was a, a senior pastor, I think, in, in one of your churches who told folks, you know, I want you to go out and, and meet somebody of a different culture or race and, and bring them into your home. And you said that you cringed because, you know, it's one thing to go out and meet, let's say, a quote-unquote black person, but to meet somebody who's going to have, um, you want, if you're going to be friends with somebody, you have to have common commonalities. You have to have things, in, you know, that you share. Um, not just, I can't just go out and meet any white person and, and they're going to be my friend. It's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen the other way either, right? Yeah, and one of the interesting things that, uh, that I, I, I try to leave when, when we speak is we have an assumption of what black is, and I put it in my book, uh, that people automatically assume they know what black is. Right. And I often wonder, do they know what white is? Why Why does this concept of white have this one broad, sweeping generalization when in actuality somebody from Glenwood, Illinois, who doesn't speak uh, Slovakian and goes over to Eastern Europe is not going to have very much in common, even though their skin pigmentation might be the same, they're going to be just as uh, different and viewed just as differently. I think uh, it's primarily a, an American phenomenon that, that uh, in my book I talked about. I'm sorry. No, I said I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that we were the only place in, on, on the continent or uh, in the world where 
these two colors had a slave and master connotation or relationship. And so people invented all of these higher-than-average walls to keep buttressing that and making it more fortified so that it so would be more different and more diverse and more separated. And, and, and we've not been able to chip away at it very much like... Uh, my brother shared earlier about uh, having a black president. We're, we're, that's one good. I'm glad somebody has a good job, but like uh, we're still not chipping away at at the underpinnings and these walls have been built so thick and so high. And Could I, well, I, you know, I would like to uh, make a comment on that. Oh, this is Paulo again, uh, because Frankie, you asked a question about mm-hmm. how do we connect? How do you bring? somebody into your home who you don't know. My own practice has been, it was very, let me tell you, it was very difficult for me. As a, I, I left Atlanta High School, I mean Atlanta, Georgia, finishing high school, not knowing any white people. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania. There were very, only 120 black students when I went there. And so I didn't know how to socialize with those white students. They weren't mean but they didn't know how to cross the line, and I didn't either. But mm-hmm. what I have learned today is that it's our stories of being human that connect us. And that's what I was trying to say, that I, I have found myself able to connect to older southern white men by listening to their stories wow. and finding small avenues for reconciliation, things that I would have never done 20, 30 Years ago, because I would have written them off as racist, you know, just you know, just paint them with, you know, like one brush. And so I'm finding that if I take the time to listen to you, to hear your story, and stop painting you with that brush that makes you white, that makes you black, that makes you Asian, but what about that which makes you human? Then I can connect. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Jimmy, you know, in your book you have a story about your your friend um, Billy Adams and you were going to rent a place and and when the the landlord found out that you're that you were the roommate um all of a sudden you know the dog couldn't be there the all of that the same thing happened to me as a canadian you know i live in a very multicultural company uh country i had never experienced really racism until i'd moved to louisville um for a couple of years and was the very first wave of of you know desegregation when i went to university in st louis my roommate was black. We went to buy a, we went to grab a house uh, off campus. At first it was, you know, a couple hundred dollars. And he goes, is she going to live with you? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a thousand dollars, you know, uh-huh. like way out of our league. And, and it was the first time I really experienced it. And she said to me, you can't come home with me. I live in East St. Louis. They'll kill you. Like, you know, we, we have to stay over here on this side. And I, like every block, it was like, okay, if you're white, you can walk in. If you're black, you can. If you're black, you can. If, you, if you're white, you can't. And I'd never, ever lived in a place like that before and it was just mind-boggling to me you know how can it be this way why is it like this if you're not brought up with it it's very it's very different and frankie i'm glad you mentioned that because paul is absolutely right the thing that can break down the barriers is if we do the hard work of having race dialogue and look at one another's humanity because the reality oftentimes you just told your story there's an african Mm -hmm. proverb that articulates the lion's story 
will never be known if the hunter is the only one that tells it. And so, Frankie, just by you telling that story, it helps me as an African-American to look at things through another lens because oftentimes African-Americans buy into their own victimization. Oftentimes African-Americans feel as though they're the only ones that are oppressed. We understand that white privilege, white supremacy, institutional racism, and structural inequality exist. But we don't want people to use racism or institutional racism as a crutch, thus buying into their own victimization. So I think what we do is we have these conversations like we're having tonight, but we also need to recognize that we're not producing the leaders that we once produced before. King dies at the tender age of 39. King comes mm -hmm. on the scene at a time where he was mentored by great men at Morehouse, Benjamin Mays, Vernon Johns, his very own father. We're not producing those type of people who can bridge the color line on both sides. What we're Aren't doing we? now, I yeah, don't think I, we are. I, I found, I mean, Chad, come on, look at you, look at you, yeah, look at I, Jimmy. I, I, I mean, the men here tonight can do that. Well, well, well I, uh, I think so, but I, I guess what I'm looking at is... And women, at, sorry. And women, <laughs> I guess what I'm looking at the church. I'm sorry, let me, let me just clarify this. When we're looking at the church, that's all that people tend, in the African-American community, some people tend to look at. They, they hear Jimmy. They hear myself. They hear Paula. They hear people on, 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 the, on this call, and they hear other people who are doing various things in the community. But what we tend to look at is the T.D. Jakes, the Bishop Eddie Longs, the Jesse Jacksons, the Al Sharptons, and these people are not speaking truth to power in a loving manner like King did. Right before right. King got killed, the following day he was to do a sermon at the Riverside Baptist Church entitled, why America may go to hell. But King told America about itself in a loving manner. What we have now is people who want to go and uh, write a book, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not either or. It's both and. But it's the prosperity preaching, and it's the mega churches, and it's this and it's that. It got away from voter registration and voter uh, rallies, and it got away from bridging the gap with white churches and synagogues. And, and now uh, uh, what we see – I'm sorry, Jimmy, go ahead. No, you go ahead, my friend. No, I, I, I just was saying that, you know, I hear what you're saying. I have a that. question. I have a question I have to ask you guys because this has really been bothering me for a long time, okay? Why, why is it African-American? Why are you distinguished? You know, he's an African-American. Why is he not an American? Why? Why is everything so distinguished in that, you know, and he's gay and he's this and she's that? And, and so by labeling all the time, we're keeping the lines. Of, no, you know, no, 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 no. You see, we had to go back. As, as African Americans, black people, and and uh, I don't know, I may be the oldest one in this conversation. I don't know. I don't know if the rest uh, of you uh, all uh, grew well. up under slavery. <laughs> not under slavery, but under. <laughs> 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 oh, we do know that I'm the youngest. You're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, we had, I grew up at a time that if somebody called you black, then those were mm -hmm. fighting words. You did, okay. I mean, a person's skin color could be dark as tar. But you could not call, you could not say, oh, your skin is black. You know, we had to go back and reclaim Africa. So that's a political statement that Africa okay. has something good. And we, because otherwise, we, you know, Africa was the dark continent. And that was right. no culture, no civilization. And so we deserve to be slaves. Because America, white Americans, white people were doing us a favor by bringing us here as slaves. And no black person wanted to be associated with Africa. And so that was a breakthrough. That's like black, black American. Okay. That's, that's a breakthrough. Yeah. Okay. It's, a great, okay. it's a great question, Frankie. I'm glad that you, you even had the courage to ask it. I think what it is is that before we were American, we were innately African. 
And right. I think that's part that's part of yeah. our identity. Um, but the other thing is, if you go to various inner city schools and you ask African American children where they're from, they'll tell you, "I'm from Los Angeles" or "I'm from Philadelphia, New York." And then when you ask white students, they'll say, uh, "I'm Italian American" or "I'm Irish American." Right. So there doesn't seem to be a connection with Africa for African American students. But we've gone through being called niggers. We've gone through being called niggers. We've gone through being called, you know, colored. And then the ushering in that Paula and Jimmy and everyone knows. Uh, of the 60s where we get the black power movement that it was okay mm-hmm. to be black and now and then we went to we're, we're african-americans and then sometimes my white colleagues will say well chad what are you guys today you know should i call you african-american or black so hopefully we'll get to a point where we will just look at each other from a humanity standpoint i just think that we have a lot more work to go well yeah. you know i'm from europe i'm from europe but i don't say i'm austrian canadian mm-hmm but but you don't have yeah. to say that. But, but but let me say this, and and maybe add a little levity to this. Levity to this. Okay. To that. I took a Brazilian um, dance class, and you know, it was really like aerobics class. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brazilian, and after I took the class, I said maybe I shouldn't call myself an African American anymore because I honestly could not keep up with all the rhythms. I can tell you one story from Belize in that. Uh, there's there's not a distinction about being a, an Afro-Caribbean or Afro. It's uh, anyone who looks like me, and I'm, I'm quite dark, is uh, is a Creole, because obviously at some point I'm, I'm not pure African. Um, the pure Africans who live in Belize are called Garifuna. So I lived next door to a tennis court, where uh, and it was a very ritzy place where most of the Europeans played. They had it was a private club and people played tennis there. And there was one curly-haired, fairly light-skinned guy who kept hitting the ball over into my yard. And I decided to tell him to stop doing it because he had to jump the fence and, and, and enter my property. I was getting a little bit annoyed. And so being the good pastor that I was, I went out and shouted at him to keep the ball over the fence and not come over anymore. And he looked up and he said, it would have to be one of you people. And that sent me off even more because uh, that was one when I was younger I hated to be called. We could, you know, all the words that Chad just mentioned weren't as bad as you people. Hmm. And uh, so then I I got a little bit more vociferous with him and told him that he better not ever come over again. Well, my neighbor said, "Uh, Jimmy, why would you get so upset? I said, because he said you people. He says, what do you think he meant by that? I said, well, because I'm black and he's white and he was putting me down she goes no 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 he's a creole just like you he meant you're an american and you guys are all pushy <laughs> <laughs> so uh sometimes uh designations uh do more harm than good i guess that's the moral of that one that. <laughs> did it have any of you read read lawrence hill's book book of negroes i have uh, no no a fabulous fabulous book just absolutely, he's just an incredible writer. But you know, he tells the story of, of a slave, um, of an African girl, young girl whose parents had been killed by the slave traders, and then they brought her to America. And she actually made her way back to Africa, and then on to England. Um, she wanted to live in, to to retire in England. And it's just absolutely a fascinating historical journey. Uh, you know, historically correct, but but. Um, if I may, I, I wanted to chime in on something Chad said earlier. about leadership and lack of leadership. And I think that 
Having been a product of the 60s and having been at the epicenter of the civil rights movement that happened in San Francisco, my brother was in the Black Panthers and uh, my nephew. And we have a tendency to romanticize uh, how vibrant and and what a, a great time it was as the leadership was. But the reality was it was a time when America was being embarrassed worldwide and uh, about being this this land of uh, egalitarianism and, and democracy, trying to fight the Russian bears, it was moving. So the stage, the, the stage was set when people did have their eyes, well, we better get our act together so we can show the rest of the world that we're better than them, otherwise the Russians are going to take over. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have that threat any longer. We're just kind of floating aimlessly out here, and social issues have kind of fallen off the trend. They're just not as important as they once were. And so I'm not so sure that I hear and run into several bright, articulate, and wonderful leaders saying a lot of wonderful things, but people aren't listening. And don't that's the sad that, part that I – beg your pardon? No, I'm saying, but don't you think that what – I mean, like, I was impressed with what Chad had to say, you know, about the lack of leadership. Um, next week, uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian, you know, who you all may be familiar with, he was – King's top um, advisor. Mm-hmm. He's we're, we're celebrating his 85th birthday down here, and uh, CT has been committed to that type of reconciling uh, leadership that challenges racism. You know, it's not about come by here, you know, and feel good, mm-hmm. but he challenges both sides. And he he set up a leadership institute because he wants to pour in all that he's learned from the civil rights movement and the human rights struggle into anybody who wants to learn. Wow. And you could you could sit at CT. I mean, I have sat with CT for two and three hours and still, you know, like he's just pouring out. And I'm wondering, you know, based on what Chad said and what came to mind was that where is the beloved community? That's what yeah. King was talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the beloved community and us being willing, and I think that, and this is where the church falls down. I mean, the musicians, you musicians do it better, Jimmy, because yeah. you're willing to go get that best musician and make that music, irrespective of the color and nationality. That's what the music industry has done with all of its limitations and downsides. Right. But the church has not. I mean, today's leadership is just like what Chad described it as. Okay, you're exactly right within the church. I'm hearing you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing you. And we're not willing okay, so, to train and we're not willing to train the next generation. You know, just hearing Paula mention that I'm oftentimes looking at the fact that we have a lot of our seasoned pastors and I'm not even talking about well known churches. A lot of our seasoned pastors are seventy two, seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. At some point, uh it's time to actually train the next generation to maybe sit down in the congregation, you get ministered to, to create a new identity. Maybe what you can do is teach some of these new upcoming pastors, both males and females, you know, uh, how to run uh, the church from a leadership standpoint. And I look at my church. My church is Triumph Baptist Church. My pastor is the Reverend James S. Hall, Jr. He served as Jesse Jackson's mentor uh, coming out of Greenville, South Carolina. My pastor's from Marion, South Carolina. And I even look at my pastor at 77 years old, and he's strong. But I'm also worried about 
what's going to happen if my pastor was to die today or tomorrow, that he's not the founder of the Triumph Baptist Church. The church is founded by Jesus Christ, depending on, you know, your particular faith. And so we look at Jeremiah Wright, who steps aside. He names Otis Moss as his successor. What we need to recognize is that these pastors cannot put themselves in a position where they're a monument unto themselves. I certainly agree with that, Chad. And, and as I'm hearing you speak, I'm thinking that we, that from a church perspective, we've lost our social mooring and our social voice is what I'm hearing you say. And, and hopefully people like you and, and myself and Paula and, and um, Pastor Dave and... McCain and... Yeah, look, I'm sorry, and I've got all the names, and, and we can do okay. something about it by having more conversations like this and, and letting people be exposed to the realities of what's going on, not only inside the church and what's outside of the church. And but I, my and question to you, okay, sorry, but my question to, my question to you, Chad, and, 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 and all of you, is if even with success and training in training in your church, what is being done in, as an outreach program to to you know, bridge that racial divide. What what are they doing? Well, I know, I'll be real brief. At our church, uh, one of the things that helps us bridge the racial divide is the Martin Luther King Day of Service, where we have a program where people from all over the city of Philadelphia come to, uh, you know, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, um, whites, um, you know, faiths, non-faiths. Um, and then what we do is we talk about King's legacy, but we also incorporate things from Native Americans as well as talking about, you know, the great work that Mother Teresa did. Also what mm -hmm. our church does is we we have a prison outreach ministry that we do with, you know, professionals, and those professionals are males who are made up of, you know, many ethnicities. Um, so that's some of the things that we're doing. I think we could definitely do more. I would love to see, you know, our church membership uh, you know, very diverse. We have 5,000 members, and, and I never see any whites at our church unless they're just visiting or if it's, you know, the governor of Pennsylvania who who's coming because it's election season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. This is I would say uh, I had a couple of, Go ahead. Uh, a couple of things that we do. We have a, uh, a team called the Building Bridges Team, and they have lots of training and events and, and so on. And one of the things that we've developed is a thing called um, a breakfast club, and we encourage uh, people of different uh, – races to get together over breakfast over a period of a year and we tell stories and uh, mm -hmm. i think the best way to to grow to grow from a them to an us is by building in, intentional relationships with people that are uh, uh different mm -hmm. than ourselves and so that's one of the ways and also events we have a thing that we have uh, this weekend called taste of reconciliation where we have uh, foods from about 40 different cultures and then we uh, have a multicultural worship service and and just celebrate our our differences um, rather than uh, fighting one another, uh, enjoying and celebrating our differences. So those are some of the things that we uh, encourage. That sounds great, Tay. Yeah, I would just say that I would think that uh, Chad's church and the other church that's described are probably unique in making that intentional effort to reach out the black churches, the black denomination that I am affiliated. I mean, we are actually international. The um, church, you know, in Africa, throughout Africa. But I find that when we have our general conferences, uh, that's not even really any recognition of the Africans mm -hmm. and the cultural diversity and issues that they bring. You know, they're just kind of like the, you know, the um, the poor cousins who come over here. And I think that 
but my experience with most black churches, most African-American churches, are really not interested in crossing the racial divide. They may have tried in the past, and, you know, they didn't get the kind of response that they want. And so they find it is more important to deal with the issues that are facing black people. Correct. You know, like we're behind the eight ball, so let's focus in. And I think that's a mistake because I think that if we work together, if black and white and Asian and others, if we can work together, then we can solve, do more towards solving the problems. I don't think we would ever eliminate problems, but I think that we could do a lot more. So I think these other two churches, um, they're probably the minority, unfortunately. Jimmy, I think you had it right in your book when you say we need to look at race casting, we need to look at race-based discrimination and racial cognition. That's something that, that you know, we really, as, as you know, white and black together, we all need to look at this and see how we can break, down, break it down because, the, you know, um, the black community is behind the eight ball is not going to be able to get out from there until they can see past their own, their own limitations. You know, yeah, brought true. to them by by uh, you know everybody else. You know, it's just because we all believe it to be so. So it is. Well, as Chad and Paula shared, I, I'm I'm part of a pre- vastly predominantly white denomination. That's where I'm ordained, and uh, and we had our, our our convention here in Houston a year ago, and uh, they had a racial reconciliation track as one of the. Uh, well, one day they had some classes about racial reconciliation. The only thing, the only problem was, they had it on Friday after the convention was over, when most people were flying back oh. to get back to their churches. And so, for for me, what I'm doing, and you ask what churches can do, I'm living in this denomination. I'm not going to leave it. I'm staying. I'm hollering. I'm talking softly. I'm doing all I can do, but I'm living as though. Um, the racism that exists in this denomination doesn't exist. And I've taken a lot of hits for it and a lot of bumps. But, you know, somebody has to do it. There there has to be somebody has to be willing to, to blaze a trail in every walk and every avenue of, of, of this country. Uh, if we all stay segregated and in our own sphere and try to do it in tandem or in group, uh, I don't know that I don't know how much success we'll have. I think this stuff started incrementally, and it's going to have to be reversed incrementally. And unfortunately, we are unfortunately out of time. I I invite all of you. You know, if you if you'd like to have this dialogue again, please please write to me, and we'll schedule another show because I think it's so important that we keep talking about this and keep reaching out. Jimmy, um, thank you so much for writing your book. A, a story of rhythm and grace, what the church can learn from rock and roll about healing the racial divide. I'm going to, to um, leave us with spirit. This is a song um, positive from Jimmy's uh, Thank you all again for being my guest this evening. Thanks to everybody who's joined us.
you all for joining me this evening. Jimmy, you've been an amazing yeah. guest, and, and everybody else who joined us were just fantastic. Oh, I'm going to hang up because we're still streaming and, and, and recording, but um, okay. I will talk to you after. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody. See Bye. you next See week. You next week. Introducing Finally, a new energy-efficient light bulb that reveals beauty in your home. Colors are true and natural, never washed out. It'd be extraordinary <clears throat> if you could see this light, but this is radio. What a pity. A light this stunning deserves better. I deserve better. <sighs> Finally, you'll love your light. Maybe a little too much. Available at Costco.